heavenly citizenship. And my family and I have been uh, renewing and uh, applying for passports lately. As uh, I think I showed you my passport the other day, didn't I? And citizenship is a wonderful thing. Have you ever thought about that? Belonging to a nation that holds and shapes you, uh, the systems of healthcare that we benefit from and education and relative political stability. Um, these have all helped shape me as a person, being a citizen of this great nation of Australia. And I'm happy to be identified as Australian. Paul also knew the importance of citizenship because he was arrested one time for preaching the gospel and when those who arrested him worked out that he was actually a Roman citizen, they were falling over themselves to be apologetic. And in fact, um, we know now in modern history how important having a state protection of your rights is. And uh, indeed, during the Holocaust, fewer German Jews were murdered in the Holocaust because the German state protected them, strangely enough, whereas in states where the, the government had collapsed, that's where the most victims were to be found. So citizenship is a really important thing. So when Paul says, you are citizens of heaven, what on earth is he talking about? And is it un-Australian? I wonder. That might be a good place to start because uh, when we say something is or isn't Australian, whether it's un-Australian, that seems to, we usually say un-Australian rather than Australian, uh, that's un-Australian, what kinds of things are we thinking about? What do we consider is or isn't Australian? What are the markers that mark us as a citizen of Australia? Where are we headed? Now, Paul says that those who are hostile to the cross have destruction as their end. And before you construe that as some kind of curse or talking about hell or this kind of thing, I would suggest it's a more descriptive uh, about life direction. And um, a lot of people are about the immediate these days. Have you noticed that? We really want things to be good for us right now and we don't really do planning nearly as well as we used to, I don't think. Um, the immediate is always a fleeting thing. You're always letting go of the immediate because the next immediate is coming along and so this immediate has to go so that you can embrace the next immediate. It doesn't take us anywhere and in a way we can become victims to it or enslaved, as it were, to the immediate. Is that what you're hoping? Are you hoping in the immediate? Is that where you're headed? kind of to the destruction of now, waiting for the next thing. In contrast to that, uh, Paul wants to talk about those who are citizens of heaven as um, those who in, engage in or experience a thoroughgoing transformation, transformation of the body. Now you might think that that is promising you that you'll look better and feel healthier, but it could also mean the, so, the transformation of the social body, the group of people. When we talk about the body of believers, we're talking about the group of people and this transformation of the social group, transforming how we relate to each other and so transforming the way the world relates to one another. Is there more to hope in there? Does that give us a sense of direction? So what's it all about, I wonder? What is this content of life? In what direction do we want to be transformed? What makes life lifey? 
as it were. Uh, Anyone who's still breathing can sort of understand the whole idea of survival, but how do we do life? And is life different to survival? Paul talks about people who are hostile to the cross as making their stomach their God. And you might think that's about consumerism and that'd be a good talk to have about that. But actually it's more likely Paul's referring to dietary requirements of his Judaizing brothers. So if you're a Jew in Paul's time, there were things you could eat and things you couldn't eat and things you couldn't eat with other things that you were eating but you could eat them at other times. And there was a whole bunch of rules. So when you sat down to a meal, it wasn't about what are we having There was a whole range of things you had to do before you had your meal. And Paul's saying, it's like your stomach is telling you how to live. And indeed, anything that functionally orders your life is effectively your God. It's the one that's telling you how to do life. It's the thing that's telling you what's most important and how you should thus live. And uh, whether that is for you a formal religious observance or whether it's some other kind of codified thing that uh, binds you to a certain set of prescriptions, it's easy to fall into believing that life is found in satisfying a set of rules set by somebody else for us. And Paul's saying, nah. Paul knows that uh, something that his audience has likely missed that life is not found in legalistic obedience. It's not in conformity to imposed directives and it's not, it, it is found in freely chosen opportunities to serve one another. And these are the moments, I think, where we are most alive. Now, when we think about when you're most alive, I think popular culture would have us to believe it's when other people are serving us, um, being handed the daiquiri as you sit by the pool and some such fantasy of opulence and luxury. I remember when I was a kid there was a TV ad about a luxury soap and a woman sitting in a bubble bath and she's reading a travel magazine. Anyone old enough to remember this? And uh, she goes, oh, Tahiti looks nice. And the, 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 the camera pans out and there's a husband sitting in another bath and he's, he picks up the gold-plated phone and says, Simon, Tahiti. And the whole picture tilts a little bit and they pan out and it's a jet and they're flying off to Tahiti. And, like, this is the life. You've got everything laid on. And uh, I don't know what your fantasy of wealth and power might be, but uh, we're told that that is <laughs> where life is to be found. And yet in reality, there's nothing more life-affirming. There's no moment when we more honestly embody the image of the Creator than when we serve someone else, than when we bring life to somebody else. And I don't mean doing someone else's bidding, because that's not serving, that's just obeying, but genuinely serving another in such a way as to help them become more alive. Uh, We glimpse this in simple things, like when we listen well to somebody, and in the conversation, both we and the person who's talking learns new things because they're being listened to so well, they can even listen to themselves in a way they've never listened before, and they become a bit more alive. We see it when we gently but firmly take the hand of uh, the child that doesn't want to do the thing that they need to do and they protest and they kick against us but we know it's a good thing to do, like bedtime for example, you know, <laughs> things like that. It's not always the most convenient thing but it's the life enhancing thing. 
And finally Paul talks about what is it that we lift up? What is it that we glory in? Because uh, Paul talks about those who glory in their shame. And shame is a fascinating thing. I think it's much maligned in today's culture. We don't like shame very much. And I think shame functions for us in a way that is a, a kind of a psychosocial dynamic that tells us when we are abrogating the social fabric. When we are doing something that if everybody did that thing, we would all be done for. And we experience shame because we kind of know that's not a good thing to do. I hope not everybody follows my example because we're stuffed if they do. And that is the role of shame. And sadly we have a rise of people who seem to be shameless. And then groups of people that seem to love that those people are shameless. I mean, you can take an extreme character like the president over the sea and uh, he's a a documented liar and uh, seems to have lived his life exploiting other people and uh, avoiding taxes and doing all sorts of things and his main brag is, yeah, but I got away with it. And other people think, yeah, that's fabulous. I wish I could get away with that. And the sense of shame appears to be lost and that's a dangerous thing because citizens of heaven... Lift up Jesus as our glory. Now, we still experience shame from time to time, but we don't glory in it. We glory in someone who gives himself for others. We glory in somebody who forgives and offers grace to us. We glory in the grace-filled, self-giving servant king who shows us the most human way to be. He is the eloquent example. And Paul says, follow the example that we are setting for you. And elsewhere he says, follow me because I follow Jesus and he's the one to follow in reality. Earlier this week, Joe and I spent several hours trying to complete an online film uh, form in the attempt to get our youngest pay a proof of citizenship document. She is a citizen, we just had to prove it because that's what you've got to do. And uh, we filled it all out, it took us a long, long time and uploaded documents and da-da-da and there was a little box, any extra comments? And Joe, my wife, thought, yeah, here we go. And she, <laughs> she said, we are Australians, we're glad about that and pay is our daughter. Enough said. In a moment we're going to baptise Sebastian Hendrik Brewer-Allen. Seb isn't going to understand a great deal of what we're about to do today, but what we're saying is that we are citizens of heaven and we're glad to be. And Seb is one of ours. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us these symbolic things to do that help us know who we are and how to live. And we pray that you would continue to lead us into life, that we might be a blessing to all who we are with, to the glory of your name. Amen.